right, welcome back to the Iron Curtain, where we bring you a class-conscious analysis of historical and current events which are pertinent to the international working class movement. If you want to help this show grow and expand, you can check out our Patreon account, which is listed in the show description. And if you want to reach out to us, you can hit up our Twitter at Iron Curtain Pod or our subreddit at r slash the Iron Curtain. We'd love to chat with you. And we're now available on Spotify and YouTube. So today we're going to be reading an interview between H.G. Wells and Comrade Stalin. This interview was done in 1934. It was for the British magazine, The New Statesman. And we'll have Comrade Denke, he'll be reading the part of H.G. Wells. And Comrade Tactical Spork, he'll be reading the part of Stalin. So yeah, boys, uh, are you ready to kick us off? Yeah, definitely. So I, I'll just start. So this is H.G. Wells. He says, I'm very much obliged to you, Mr. Stalin, for agreeing to see me. I was in the United States recently. I had a long conversation with President Roosevelt and tried to ascertain what his leading ideas were. Now I've come to ask you what you're doing to change the world. Not so very much. Well, I wander around the world as a common man and, as a common man, observe what's going on around me. Important public men like yourself are not common men. Of course, history alone can show how important this or that public man has been. At all events, you do not look at in the world as a common man. Well, I'm not pretending humility. What I mean is that I try to see the world through the eyes of a common man, not as a party politician or a responsible administrator. My visit to the United States excited my mind. The old financial world is collapsing. The economic life of the country is being reorganized on new lines. Lenin said, we must learn to do business. Learn this from the capitalists. Today, the capitalists have to learn from you to grasp the spirit of socialism. It seems to me that what's taking place in the United States is a profound reorganization the creation of a planned, that is, socialist economy. You and Roosevelt began from two different starting points, but is there not a relation in ideas, a kinship of ideas between Moscow and Washington? In Washington, I was struck by the same thing I see going on here. They're building uh, offices. They're creating a number of state regulation bodies. They are reorganizing a long-needed civil service. Their need, like yours, is directive ability. The United States is pursuing a different aim from that which we are pursuing in the USSR. The aim which the Americans are pursuing arose out of the economic troubles, out of the economic crisis. The Americans want to rid themselves of the crisis on the basis of private capitalist activity, without changing the economic basis. They are trying to reduce the minimum, the ruin, the losses caused by the existing economic system. Here, however, as you know, in place of the old, destroyed economic basis, an entirely different, a new economic basis has been created. Even if the Americans you mentioned partly achieve their aim, i.e. reduce those losses to a minimum, they will not destroy the roots of the anarchy, which is inherent in the existing capitalist system. They're preserving the economic system, which must inevitably lead, and cannot but lead, to anarchy in production. Thus, at best, it will be a matter, not of the reorganization of society, not abolishing the old social system which gives rise to anarchy and crises, but of restricting certain of its excesses. Subjectively, perhaps, these Americans think that they are reorganizing society. Objectively, however, they are preserving the present basis of society. That is why, objectively, there will be no reorganization of society. 
nor will there be planned economy. What is planned economy? What are some of its attributes? Planned economy tries to abolish unemployment. Let us suppose it is possible, while preserving the capitalist system, to reduce unemployment to a certain minimum. But surely, no capitalist would ever agree to the complete abolition of unemployment, to the abolition of the reserve army of unemployed, the purpose of which is to bring pressure on the labor market, to ensure its supply of cheap labor. Here you have one of the rents in the planned economy of bourgeois society. Furthermore, planned economy presupposes increased output in those branches of industry which produce goods that the masses of the people need particularly. But you know that the expansion of production under capitalism takes place for entirely different motives, that capital flows into those branches of economy in which the state of profit is highest. You will never compel a capitalist to incur loss to himself and agree to a lower rate of profit for the sake of satisfying the needs of the people. Without getting rid of the capitalists, without abolishing the principle of private property in the means of production, it is impossible to create planned economy. I agree with much of what you've said, but I would like to stress the point that if a country as a whole adopts the principle of a planned economy, if the government gradually, step by step, begins consistently to apply this principle, the financial oligarchy will at last be abolished and socialism and the Anglo-Saxon meaning of the word will be brought about. The effect of the ideas of Roosevelt's New Deal is most powerful, and in my opinion, they are socialist ideas. It seems to me that instead of, a, uh, instead of stressing the antagonism between the two worlds, we should, in the present circumstances, strive to establish a common tongue for all the constructive forces. I actually want to jump in here. <clears throat> sure. Um, what you have here is, you know, the the <laughs> the revolution versus reform argument once again happening uh, in this interview with Stalin and Wells. And I also wanted to bring up uh, Stalin brings up a point that I've forgotten in the couple, last couple of months, but um, uh, that capitalism uses unemployment as a threat, right? That capitalism right. uses the, the threat and the existence of the unemployed, of the houseless, um, as a way to put pressure on the current workers to accept the bare minimum. Because if you don't accept this bare minimum, this is what you have uh, to deal with instead, which is, uh, is something that I've forgotten about in recent months. And I wanted to point it out for everybody else because it's a good point. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I'm, I'm glad he brought up that point as well because. To me, I, I, that's something that I've brought up a lot, and it does seem like it is one of the primary contradictions when we talk about this step-by-step -step approach. You know, that's even what H.G. Wells just said, but you're going to run into those kind of contradictions, like this capitalist system was built to function a certain way. So if you take those kind of things out, um, it, it obviously won't be able to run the same way. So yeah, he's pointing out very clearly that you obviously need to reorganize society. Absolutely. All right. Want to keep going? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. In speaking of the impossibility of realizing the principles of planned economy while preserving the economic basis of capitalism, I do not in the least desire to belittle the outstanding personal qualities of Roosevelt, his initiative, courage, and determination. Undoubtedly, Roosevelt stands out as one of the strongest figures among all the captains of the contemporary capitalist world. That is why I would like, once again, to emphasize the point that my conviction that planned economy is impossible under the conditions of capitalism does not mean that I have any doubts about the personal abilities, talent, 
and courage of President Roosevelt. But if the circumstances are unfavorable, the most talented captain cannot reach the goal you refer to. Theoretically, of course, the possibility of marching gradually, step by step, under the conditions of capitalism, towards the goal which you call socialism in the Anglo-Saxon meaning of the word, is not precluded. But what will this socialism be? At best, bridling to some extent, the most unbridled of individual representatives of capitalist profit, some increase in the application of the principle of regulation in national economy. That is all very well. But as soon as Roosevelt, or any other captains of the contemporary bourgeois world, proceeds to undertake something serious against the foundations of capitalism, he will inevitably suffer utter defeat. The banks, the industries, the large enterprises, the large farms are not in Roosevelt's hands. All these are private property. The railroads, the mercantile fleet, all these belong to private owners. And finally, the army of skilled workers, the engineers, the technicians, these too are not at Roosevelt's command. They are at the command of the private owners. They all work for the private owners. We must not forget the functions of the state in the bourgeois world. The state is an institution that organizes the defense of the country, organizes the maintenance of order. It is an apparatus for collecting taxes. The capitalist state does not deal much with economy in the strict sense of the word. The latter is not in the hands of the state. On the contrary, the state is in the hands of capitalist economy. That is why I fear that in spite of all his energies and abilities, Roosevelt will not achieve the goal you mention, if indeed that is his goal. Perhaps, in the course of several generations, it will be possible to approach this goal somewhat, but I personally think that even this is not very probable. I wanted to, I wanted to bring something up there anyways. Um, the, the sentence, or part of the sentence, the goal which you call socialism in the Anglo-Saxon meaning of the word... I wanted to ask everybody, just just for discussion's purposes, what is the Anglo-Saxon meaning of the word socialism? It sounds a lot like when people talk about Nordic socialism today. Yeah, that, that's like it's democratic socialism in the most liberal form, right? It's just I, I was looking at that and was marveling of I don't yeah, know. It sounds if it's like a Lasellian concept. Yeah, like the state can be used as antagonism. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't tell if it's a nice way of putting it or a very condemning way of putting that. Uh, I think yeah. he means more of like a, I think he's probably talking about it in terms of like a more civilized sort of genteel type of socialism that doesn't require all this messy revolution. It's, you know, it's more class collaborationist type of thing. It's almost like a precursor to the modern day DSA sentiment. Yeah. It sounds it very much mirrors like the Bernie Sanders kind of like argument. Um, of course, like Roosevelt was instituting policies similar to what Bernie describes like in that time. So that's different. But the sentiment that a lot of Bernie Sanders, you know, um, supporters are showing is kind of like this gradual step by step process. And it's interesting that this interview is kind of mirroring that conversation that we're dealing with a lot now. Right. And also, I mean, if you have yeah. your industry in private hands, like Wells talks about, oh, well, if we just keep taking these Roosevelt style reforms further and further and further, eventually we'll be at socialism. But think about what actually happened um, after the New Deal and all this happened. Uh, eventually, most of the programs that were instituted in the New Deal under Roosevelt were stripped away under Reagan and under uh, neoliberals and neoconservatives 
Um, so that is exactly what the um, capitalist state does during a period of crisis. It might make some concessions, but as soon as it can, it's going to undo those concessions um, as soon as it basically is politically able to do so. Yeah, you can even see how like uh, the British have tried to do this. The the British conservatives have tried to defund and, and uh, destabilize the NHS. And something else, uh, I, whenever I'm thinking of, you know, Anglo-Saxon socialism, I'm thinking about uh, the the mission that the that the Anglo people took upon themselves to civilize the rest of the world and seeing that kind of chauvinism in this own interview where this is kind of like H.G. Wells won't condemn Stalin or the Bolsheviks for having a revolution, but, you know, we Anglo-Saxons are a civilized people and we don't need to do that. Because we're this is the same line that Bernstein in Germany advances. Like we are in a more civilized era of capitalism, and uh, the most advanced stage of capitalism, which means we can debate these things and not need to have this revolution. Because so advanced are we. Right. Yeah, and Stalin correctly points out, he, he says socialism could arise out of, like, I guess some New Deal reforms, but he pretty much says, I highly doubt that is ever going to happen. And um, like we said, you know, neoliberalism kind of came in and wiped that that out. So, so yeah, absolutely. Um, are you guys ready to go on reading? Yep. Okay, um, everybody, I'm going to be subbing in for, for Wells's part because we're having issues on with Denki's internet. So please excuse the voice change, but we have to do it. So, <clears throat> perhaps I believe more strongly in the economic interpretation of politics than you do. Huge forces driving towards better organization for the better functioning of the community, that is, for socialism, have been brought into action by invention and modern science. Organization and the regulation of individual action have become mechanical necessities irrespective of social theories. If we begin with the state control of the banks and then follow with the control of transport, of the heavy industries, of industry in general, of commerce, etc., such an all-embracing control will be equivalent to the state ownership of all branches of national economy. This will be the process of socialization. Socialism and individualism are not opposites like black and white. There are many intermediate stages between them. There is individualism that borders on brigandage. There you go. Okay. And there is discipline and organization that are the equivalent of socialism. The introduction of planned economy depends to a large degree upon the organizers of economy, upon the skilled technical intelligentsia who, step by step, can be converted to the socialist principles of organization. And this is the most important thing, because organization comes before socialism. It is the more important fact. Without organization, the socialist idea is a mere idea. There is no, nor should there be, irreconcilable contrast between the individual and the collective, between the interests of the individual person and the interests of the collective. There should be no such contrast, because collectivism, socialism, does not deny, but combines individual interests with the interests of the collective. Socialism cannot abstract itself from individual interests. Social society alone can most fully satisfy these personal interests. More than that, socialist society alone can firmly safeguard the interests of the individual. In this sense, there is no irreconcilable contrast between individualism and socialism. But can we deny the contrast between classes, 
between the property class, the capitalist class, and the toiling class, the proletarian class. On the one hand, we have the property class, which owns the banks, the factories, the mines, transport, the plantations and colonies. These people see nothing but their own interests. They're striving after profits. They do not submit to the will of the collective. They strive to subordinate every collective to their will. On the other hand, we have the class of the poor, the exploited class, which owns neither factories nor works, nor banks, which is compelled to live by selling its labor power to the capitalists, which lacks the opportunity to satisfy its most elementary requirements. How can such opposite interests and strivings be reconciled? As far as I know, Roosevelt has not succeeded in finding the path of conciliation between these interests. And it is impossible, as experience has shown. Incidentally, you know the situation in the United States better than I do, as I have never been there, and I watch American affairs mainly from literature. But I have some experience in fighting for socialism, and this experience tells me that if Roosevelt makes a real attempt to satisfy the interests of the proletarian class at the expense of the capitalist class, the latter will put another president in his place. The capitalists will say, Presidents come and presidents go, but we go on forever. If this or that president does not protect our interests, we shall find another. What can the president oppose to the will of the capitalist class? I object to this simplified classification of mankind into poor and rich. Of course, there is a category of people which strive only for profit. But are not these people regarded as nuisances in the West just as much as here? And there, are there not plenty of people in the West for whom profit is not an end, who own a certain amount of wealth, who want to invest and obtain a profit from this investment, but who do not regard this as the main object? They regard investment as an inconvenient necessity, are there not plenty of capable and devoted engineers, organizers of economy, whose activities are stimulated by something other than profit? In my opinion, there is a numerous class of capable people who admit that the present system is unsatisfactory and who are destined to play a great role in the future of socialist society. During the past few years, I have been much engaged in and have thought of the need for conducting propaganda in favor of socialism and cosmopolitanism among wide circles of engineers, airmen, military, technical people, etc. It is useless to approach these circles with two-track class war propaganda. These people understand the condition of the world. They understand that it is a bloody muddle, but they regard your simple class war antagonism as nonsense. You object to the simplified classification of mankind into rich and poor. Of course there is a middle stratum. There is the technical intelligentsia that you have mentioned, and among which there are very, many very good and very honest people. Among them there is also dishonest and wicked people. There are all sorts of people among them. But first of all, mankind is divided into rich and poor, into property owners and exploited, and to abstract oneself from this fundamental division and from the antagonism between poor and rich means abstracting oneself from the fundamental fact. I do not deny the existence of intermediate middle strata, which either take the side of one or the other of these two conflicting classes, or else take up a neutral or semi-neutral position in this struggle. But, I repeat, to abstract oneself from this fundamental division in society and from the fundamental struggle between the two main classes means ignoring facts. The struggle is going on and will continue. The outcome will be determined by the proletarian class, the working class. But are there not many people who are not poor, but who work and work productively? 
Of course. There are small landowners, artisans, small traders, but it is not these people who decide the fate of a country, but the toiling masses who produce all the things society requires. But there are very different kinds of capitalists. There are capitalists who only think about profit, about getting rich, but there are also those who are prepared to make sacrifices. Take old Morgan, for example. He only thought about profit. He was a parasite on society. Simply, he merely accumulated wealth. But take Rockefeller. He is a brilliant organizer. He has set an example of how to organize the delivery of oil that is worthy of emulation. Or take Ford. Of course Ford is selfish, but is he not a passionate organizer of rationalized production from whom you take lessons? I'd like to emphasize the fact that recently, an important change in opinion towards the USSR has taken place in English-speaking countries. The reason for this, first of all, is the position of Japan and the events in Germany. But there are other reasons beside the, besides those arising from international politics. There is a more profound reason, namely the recognition by many people of the fact that the system based on private profit is breaking down. Under these circumstances, it seems to me, we must not bring to the forefront of the antagonism between the two worlds, but should strive to combine all the constructive movements, all the constructive forces in one line as much as possible. It seems to me that I am more to the left of, than you, Mr. Stalin. I think the old system is nearer to us in than you think. In speaking of the capitalists who strive only for profit, only to get rich, I do not want to say that these are the most worthless people, capable of nothing else. Many of them undoubtedly possess great organizing talent, which I do not dream of denying. We Soviet people learn a great deal from the capitalists, and Morgan, whom you characterize so unfavorably, was undoubtedly a good, capable organizer. But if you mean people who are prepared to reconstruct the world, of course, you will not be able to find them in the ranks of those who faithfully serve the cause of profit. We and they stand at opposite poles. You mentioned Ford. Of course, he is a capable organizer of production. But don't you know his attitude to the working class? Don't you know how many workers he throws on the street? The capitalist is riveted to profit, and no power on earth can tear him away from it. Capitalism will be abolished, not by organizers of production, not by the technical intelligentsia, but by the working class because the aforementioned strata do not play an independent role. The engineer, the organizer of production, does not work as he would like to, but as he is ordered, in such a way as to serve the interests of his employers. There are exceptions, of course. There are people in this stratum who have awakened from the intoxication of capitalism. The technical intelligentsia can, under certain conditions, perform miracles and greatly benefit mankind, but it can also cause great harm. We Soviet people have not a little experience of the technical intelligentsia. After the October Revolution, a certain section of the technical intelligentsia refused to take part in the work of constructing a new society. They opposed this work on construction and sabotaged it. We did all we possibly could to bring the technical intelligentsia into this work of construction. We tried this way and that. Not a little time passed before our technical intelligentsia agreed actively to assist the new system. Today, the best section of this technical intelligentsia are in the front rank of the builders of socialist society. Having this experience, we are far from underestimating the good and the bad sides of the technical intelligentsia, and we know that on the one hand, it can do harm, and on the other hand, it can perform miracles. Of course, things would be differ different if it were possible, at one stroke, spiritually to tear the technical intelligentsia away from the capitalist world, but that is utopia. Are there many of the technical intelligentsia 
who would dare break away from the bourgeois world and set to work reconstructing society? Do you think there are many people of this kind, say, in England or France? No. There are few who would be willing to break away from their employers and begin reconstructing the world. Besides, can we lose sight of the fact that in order to transform the world, it is necessary to have political power? It seems to me, Mr. Wells, that you greatly underestimate the question of political power, that it entirely drops out of your conception. What can those, even with the best intentions in the world, do if they are unable to raise the question of seizing power and do not possess power? At best, they can help the class which takes power, but they cannot change the world themselves. This can only be done by a great class which will take the place of the capitalist class and become the sovereign master as the latter was before. This class is the working class. Of course, the assistance of the technical intelligentsia must be accepted, and the latter in turn must be assisted. But it must not be thought that the technical intelligentsia can play an independent historical role. The transformation of the world is a great, complicated, and painful process. For this task, a great class is required. Big ships go on long voyages. Okay, uh, yeah, I'd like to cut in here for a sec. Um, so it seems like what what they're discussing here is H.G. Wells is essentially saying, I mean, yeah, we want to strive for socialism, right? But you don't have to take on this like harsh class war kind of rhetoric. You can kind of, uh, you know, just convince people like to to joining this since it's a more effective society and such like that. But, you know, Stalin's essentially showing him that, I mean, if this system is built this way, these the people that play their parts are going to generally fight for their personal interests. Um, and, you know, H.G. Wells is going on to say that there's not really a, a contradiction between like um, the individual and like the collective or whatever. But I, I like Stalin's point when he points out that <clears throat> that socialism, it, it gives the chance to unify individual interests and really tap some unharnessed um, energy that you can use for building a, a, a society. But yeah, I'm curious what, what y'all think about that. Yeah, one of the weird things that um, I think we encounter even nowadays, H.G. Uh, Wells seems to be giving the argument that it is necessary for us to keep the bourgeois around because they have a certain amount of technical know-how and organizing ability. And I think Stalin realizes here, yes, there is a certain utility in having the technical intelligentsia, but we can't rely on the technical intelligentsia to guide society towards a socialist path because um, their interests aren't necessarily uh, coinciding with that of the working class. You'll, you see just as many uh, reactionaries, or if not more so, amongst the te uh, technical intelligentsia than uh, normal. So you can't really rely on them to overthrow the revolution. And at the same time, this... Wells is sort of implying that we need to keep the bourgeois around because we need their expertise. And I think Stalin sort of showed that you can use the technical intelligentsia to educate the working class to the point of being able to manage things themselves. So yeah. it's really a temporary problem. But this... Wells is acting like this is the thing that is uh, you know, a critical problem for socialism. 
Yeah, and it's important to understand that this debate had already happened, and this this was in 1934, right? It was still going on in the Soviet Union at this time. They were still having arguments about this in the Soviet Union. Bakarin was one of those people that, that was, you know, the class co collaborationist position. Um, this is not a new position from Wells in any shape or form. Yeah, it's just interesting how Wells is often even further to the left, even in 1934, than many uh, social Democrats, Democratic Socialists are today. I mean, he he does seem genuinely committed to building socialism and empowering the working class. But yeah, all of these, all of his arguments sound very familiar to today. And I mean, look where the New Deal went, you know, like this is, this is a lesson that we can take from the past. We don't need to keep going in blind and making the same mistakes as he did. Yeah. yeah to, to Wells' credit, I, I am surprised to see him thinking so ahead in the future. Like he's really hoping that we get to like a socialist society. It's, but it's just clear that he, he has some hangups on how we'll actually get there. But yeah, like you said, I, I mean, I don't even hear a lot of like modern, um, you know, people who claim they're socialists thinking that far ahead of how, how we're going to get to like such a society. Yeah, for, for most socialists today, self-described socialists today, it's all about, you know, the one great man uh, who, who will get in the office and then will be socialist. Then You know, there's no, there's not much <laughs> of a greater level of forethought than that of just get this one person into office and everything will change. Right, exactly. I mean, even even after a revolution, you still have to govern you know you still have to deal with all of these other challenges you know winning the revolution is is one thing but it's not the only thing you have to you have to be able to work with what you have all right sh should we continue on i think so yeah, uh, yeah. read read the last sentence of stalin's sure thing. thing there yeah uh the transformation of the world is a great complicated and painful process for this task a great class is required big ships go on long voyages Yes, but for long voyages, a captain and navigator are required. That is true. But what is first required for a long voyage is a big ship. What is a navigator without a ship? An idle man. The big ship is humanity, not a class. You, Mr. Wells, evidently start out with the assumption that all men are good. I, however, do not forget that there are many wicked men. I do not believe in the goodness of the bourgeois. I remember the situation with regard to the technical intelligentsia several decades ago. At that time, the technical intelligentsia was numerically small, but there was much to do, and every engineer, technician, and intellectual found his opportunity. That is why the technical intelligentsia was the least revolutionary class. Now, however, there is a superabundance of technical intellectuals, and their mentality has changed very sharply. The skilled man who would formerly never listen to revolutionary talk, is now greatly interested in it. Recently, I was dining with the Royal Society, our great English scientific society. The president's speech was a, was a speech for social planning and scientific control. Thirty years ago, they would not have listened to what I say to them now. Today, the man at the head of the Royal Society holds revolutionary views and insists on the scientific reorganization of human society. Mentality changes. Your class war propaganda has not kept pace with these facts. Yes, I know this. And this is to be explained by the fact that capitalist society is now in a cul-de-sac. The capitalists are seeking, but cannot find a way out of this cul-de-sac, 
that would be compatible with the dignity of this class, compatible with the interests of this class. They could, to some extent, crawl out of the crisis on their hands and knees, but they cannot find an exit that would enable them to walk out of it with their head held high, a way that would not fundamentally disturb the interests of capitalism. This, of course, is realized by wide circles of the technical intelligentsia. A large section of it is beginning to realize that the community of its interests with those of the class which is capable of pointing the way out of the cul-de-sac. You of all people know something about revolutions, Mr. Stalin, from the practical side. Do the masses ever rise? Is it not an established truth that all revolutions are made by a minority? To bring about a revolution, a leading revolutionary minority is required, but the most talented, devoted, and energetic minority would be helpless if it did not rely upon at least the passive support of millions. At least passive, perhaps subconscious. Partly also the semi-instinctive and semi-conscious, but without the support of millions, the best minority is impotent. I watch communist propaganda in the West, and it seems to me that in modern conditions, this propaganda sounds very old-fashioned because it is insurrectionary propaganda. Propaganda in favor of the violent overthrow of the social system was all very well when it was directed against tyranny. But under modern conditions, when the system is collapsing anyhow, stress should be laid on efficiency, on competence, on productiveness, and not on insurrection. It seems to me that the insurrectionary note is obsolete. The communist propaganda in the West is a nuisance to constructive-minded people. Of course, the old system is breaking down and decaying. That is true. But it is also true that new efforts are being made by other methods, by every means, to protect, to save this dying system. You draw a wrong conclusion from a correct postulate. You rightly state that the old world is breaking down. But you are wrong in thinking that it is breaking down of its own accord. No, the substitution of one social system for another is a complicated and long revolutionary process. It is not simply a spontaneous process, but a struggle. It is a, pro a process connected with the clash of classes. Capitalism is decaying, but it must not be compared simply with a tree that, which has decayed to such an extent that it must fall to the ground of its own accord. No, revolution the substitution of one social system for another has always been a struggle, a painful and a cruel struggle, a life and death struggle. And every time the people of the new world come into power, they had to defend themselves against the attempts of the old world to restore the old power by force. These people of the new world always had to be on the alert, always had to be ready to repel the attack of the world upon the new system. Yes, you are right when you say that the old social system is breaking down, but it is not breaking down of its own accord. Take fascism, for example. Fascism is a reactionary force, which is trying to preserve the old system by means of violence. What will you do with the fascists? Argue with them? Try to convince them? But this will have no effect upon them at all. Communists do not in the least idealize the methods of violence. But they, the communists, do not want to be taken by surprise. They cannot count on the old world voluntarily departing from the stage. They see that the old system is violently defending itself, and that is why the communists say to the working class, answer violence with violence. Do all you can to prevent the old dying order from crushing you. Do not permit it to put manacles on your hands, on the hands with which you will overthrow the old system. As you see, the communists regard the substitution of one social system for another 
not simply as a spontaneous and peaceful process, but as a complicated, long, and violent process. Communists cannot ignore facts. Look at what is now going on in the capitalist world. The collapse is not a simple one. It is the outbreak of reactionary violence, which is degenerating to gangsterism. And it seems to me that when it comes to a conflict with reactionary and unintelligent violence, socialists can appeal to the law, and instead of regarding the police as the enemy, they should support them in the fight against the reactionaries. I think that it is useless operating with the methods of the old insurrectionary socialism. The communists base themselves on rich historical experience, which teaches that obsolete classes do not voluntarily abandon the stage of history. Recall the history of England in the 17th century. Did not many say that the old social system had decayed? But it did not, nevertheless, require a Cromwell to crush it by force. Cromwell acted on the basis of the Constitution and in the name of constitutional order. In the name of the Constitution, he resorted to violence, beheaded the king, dispersed parliament, arrested some and beheaded others. Or take an example from our history. Was it not clear for a long time that the Tsarist system was decaying, was breaking down? But how much blood had to be shed in order to overthrow it? And what about the October Revolution? Were there not plenty of people who knew that we alone, the Bolsheviks, were indicating the only correct way out? Was it not clear that Russian capitalism had decayed? But you know how great was the resistance, how much blood had to be shed in order to defend the October Revolution from all its enemies, internal and external. Or take France, at the end of the 18th century. Long before 1789, it was clear to many how rotten the royal power, the feudal system was. But a popular insurrection, a clash of classes, was not, could not be avoided. Why? Because the classes which must abandon the stage of history are the last to become convinced that their role is ended. It is impossible to convince them of this. They think that the fissures in the decaying edifice of the old order can be repaired and saved. This is why dying classes take to arms and resort to every means to save their existence as a ruling class. But there were not a few lawyers at the head of the, Fr of the great French Revolution. Do you deny the role of the intelligentsia in revolutionary movements? Was the great French Revolution a lawyer's revolution and not a popular revolution, which achieved victory by rousing vast masses of the people against feudalism and championed the interests of the Third Estate? And did the lawyers among the leaders of the great French Revolution act in accordance with the laws of the old order? Did they not introduce new bourgeois revolutionary laws the rich experience of history teaches us that up to now not a single class has voluntarily made way for another class there is no such precedent in world history the communists have learned this lesson of history communists would welcome the voluntary departure of the bourgeois but such a turn of affairs is highly improbable that is what experience teaches that is why the communists want to be prepared for the worst and call upon the working class to be vigilant, to be prepared for battle. Who wants a captain who lulls the vigilance of his army, a captain who does not understand that the enemy will not surrender, that he must be crushed? To be such a captain means deceiving, betraying the working class. That is why I think that what seems to you to be old-fashioned is in fact a measure of revolutionary expediency for the working class. 
I do not deny that force has to be used, but I think the forms of the struggle should fit as closely as possible to the opportunities presented by the existing laws, which must be defended against reactionary attacks. There is no need to disorganize the old system because it is disorganizing itself enough as it is. That is why it seems to me insurrection against the old order, against the law, is obsolete, old-fashioned. Incidentally, I deliberately exaggerate in order to bring the truth out more clearly. I can formulate my point of view in the following way. First, I am for order. Second, I attack the present system insofar as it cannot assure order. Third, I think that class war propaganda may detach from socialism just those education, educated people whom socialism needs. In order to achieve a great object, an important social object, there must be a main force, a bulwark. A revolutionary class. Next, it is necessary to organize the assistance of an auxiliary force for this main force. In this case, this auxiliary force is the party, to which the next the best forces of the intelligentsia belong. Just now, you spoke about educated people. But what educated people did you have in mind? Were there not plenty of educated people on the side of the old order in England in the 17th century? In France at the end of the 18th century? And in Russia, in the epoch of the October Revolution, the old order had in its service many highly educated people who defended the old order, who opposed the new order. Education is a weapon, the effect of which is determined by the hands which wield it, by who it is to be struck down. Of course, the proletariat, socialism, needs highly educated people. Clearly, simpletons cannot help the proletariat to fight for socialism, to build a new society. I do not underestimate the role of the intelligentsia. On the contrary, I emphasize it. The question is, however, which intelligentsia are we discussing? Because there are different kinds of intelligentsia. There can be no revolution without a radical change in the educational system. It is sufficient to quote two examples. The example of the German Republic, which did not touch the old educational system and therefore never became a republic, and the example of the British Labour Party, which lacks the determination to insist on a radical change in the educational system. That is a correct observation. Permit me now to reply to your three points. First, the main thing for the revolution is the existence of a social bulwark. This bulwark is the, of the revolution is the working class. Second, an auxiliary force is required, that which the communists call a party. To the party belong the intelligent workers and those elements of the technical intelligentsia which are closely connected with the working class. The intelligentsia can be strong only if it combines with the working class. If it opposes the working class, it becomes a cipher. Third, political power is required as a lever for change. The new political power creates the new laws, the new order, which is revolutionary order. I do not stand for any kind of order. I stand for order that corresponds to the interests of the working class. If, however, any of the laws of the old order can be utilized in the interests of the struggle for the new order, the old laws should be utilized. I cannot object to your postulate that the present system should be attacked insofar as it does not ensure the necessary order for the people. And finally, you are wrong if you think that the communists are enamored of violence. They would be very pleased to drop violent methods if the ruling class agreed to give way to the working class, but the experience of history speaks against such an assumption. There was a case in the history of England, however, of a class voluntarily handing over power to another class. In the period between 1830 and 1870, 
The aristocracy, whose influence was still very considerable at the end of the 18th century, voluntarily, without a severe struggle, surrendered power to the bourgeoisie, which serves as a sentimental support of the monarchy. Subsequently, this transference of power led to the establishment of the, fi of the rule of the financial oligarchy. But you have imperceptibly passed from questions of revolution to questions of reform. This is not the same thing. Don't you think that the Chartist movement played a great role in the reforms in England in the 19th century? The Chartists did little and disappeared without leaving a trace. I do not agree with you. The Chartists and the strike movement which they organized played a great role. They compelled the ruling class to make a number of concessions in regard to the franchise, in regard to abolishing the so-called rotten boroughs, and in regard to some of the, port the points of the Charter. Chartism played a not unimportant historical role and compelled a section of the ruling classes to make certain concessions, reforms, in order to avert great shocks. Generally speaking, it must be said that of all the ruling classes, the ruling classes of England, both the aristocracy and the bourgeois, proved to be the cleverest, most flexible from the point of view of their class interests, from the point of view of maintaining their power. Take as an example, say, from modern history, the general strike in England in 1926. The first thing any other bourgeois would have done in the face of such an event, when the General Council of Trade Unions called for a strike, would have been to arrest the trade union leaders. The British bourgeois did not do that, and it acted cleverly from the point of view of its own interests. I cannot conceive of such a flexible strategy being employed by the bourgeois in the United States, Germany, or France. In order to maintain their rule, the ruling classes of Great Britain have never forsworn small concessions, reforms, but it would be a mistake to think that these reforms were revolutionary. You have a higher opinion of the ruling class of my, of my country than I have, but is there a great difference between a small revolution and a great reform? Is not a reform a small revolution? Owing to pressure from below, the pressure of the masses, the bourgeois may sometimes concede certain partial reforms while remaining on the basis of the existing social economic system. Acting in this way, it calculates that these concessions are necessary in order to preserve its class rule. This is the essence of reform. Revolution, however, means the transference of power from one class to another. That is why it is impossible to describe any reform as revolution. That is why we cannot count on the change of social systems taking place as an imperceptible transition from one system to another by means of reforms, by the ruling class making concessions. I am very grateful to you for this talk, which has meant a great deal to me. In explaining things to me, you probably called to mind how you had to explain the fundamentals of socialism in the illegal circles before the revolution. At the present time, there are only two persons to whose opinion, to whose every word, millions are listening. You and Roosevelt. Others may preach as much as they like. What they say will never be printed or heeded. I cannot yet appreciate what has been done in your country. I only arrived yesterday. But I have already seen the happy faces of healthy men and women, and I know that something very considerable is being done here. The contrast with 1920 is astounding. Much more could have been done had we Bolsheviks been cleverer. No, if human beings were cleverer, it would be a good thing to invent a five-year plan for the reconstruction of the human brain, which obviously lacks many things needed for a perfect social order. <laughs> Don't you intend to stay for the Congress of the Soviet Writers' Union? 
Unfortunately, I have various engagements to fulfill, and I can stay in the USSR only for a week. I came to see you, and I am very satisfied by our talk, by, but I intend to discuss with such Soviet writers as I can meet the possibility of their affiliating to the Pen Club. This is an international organization of writers founded by Galsworthy after his death, I became president. The organization is still weak, but it has branches in many countries, and what is more important, the speeches of the members are hardly reported in the press. It insists upon this free expression of opinion, even of opposition opinion. I hope to discuss this point with Gorky. I do not know if you are prepared yet for that much freedom here. We Bolsheviks call it self-criticism. It is widely used in the USSR. If there is anything I can do to help you, I shall be glad to do so. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that was nice. What comments do we have, boys? There was there was a lot covered in that final, yeah. final bit. I, I thought I thought there was a lot of good stuff in there. That was real good. Um, you know, it seems you know obviously revolution and reform were a big theme, but they also really got at the point of like what what is called like peaceful coexistence and like peaceful competition. Um, now I know like peaceful competition, that's something that Henry Wallace, you know, um, Roosevelt's vice president was really for. He, he viewed the Soviet union and, um, competing with capitalist countries, you know, just competitively, not militarily. Um, the problem with that though, is we've learned from like the cold war and everything that, you know, these capitalist countries are going to militarize and force these other socialist countries to militarize too. And you create these kind of conflicts. So, you know, history has kind of shown how H.G. Wells approach as far as how peaceful competition plays out. Now, I don't want to make it sound like I'm totally opposed to peaceful competition. This is something, you know, China um, has has expressed that they're trying to do. And I know even Lenin, he called it, um, what did he call it? Like peaceful coexistence. So this is an idea that some people in socialist countries and some people in capitalist countries have. The problem is you can't really do that forever because once socialism becomes more effective in the dominant mode of production, um, the capitalists are, well, they're really not going to want it to even get to that point. And as um, Stalin would find out in his later years with regards to peaceful coexistence is you can engage with uh, the capitalist states and with the capitalist class in good faith all you want. Uh, they will always be trying to figure out how to undermine you in any way they can. Um, it is usually a one-way street. Yeah, one thing that stood out to me was Wells' sentiment that somehow the bourgeois state would just sort of dissolve away on its own naturally, and there would be no need for a violent revolution. And I appreciate Stalin sort of holding him to task on that and calling out specific examples of, yes, when the old order collapses, it doesn't just wane uh, away uh, silently. It goes out kicking and screaming. And there is always a revolution involved in the overthrowing of the old order. Yeah, Wells and others, many like him, seem to be under the impression that Everybody are uh, not rational actions, but everybody's. Um, Everybody uh, operates in good faith. They're trying yeah, to do the best that they yeah, can for society. Yeah. They, uh, they, they're everybody's a humanitarian, basically, and you know everybody can see 
all the wrong that's being done to people. And just by seeing that, you know, they'll feel in their hearts that something must be done and something must be changed and everybody will come around that, which just doesn't happen. And he seems to, he seems to be under the pressure, under the impression that like things like fascism and other reactionary movements will be generally fought by the police. I thought I saw that um, in there too, as well. Um, Of course, we've learned that even during that time, that really wasn't the case. Um, You know, American businesses were doing, um, you know, business with Nazi Germany and such, but yeah, he seems to kind of have this, um, this really nice and clean view of how this thing will evolve. And, you know, that's something that people talk about when they bring up, you know, dialectical materialism and stuff is it kind of relates to, you could relate it to like evolution in general, like how, you know, species evolve or other things. And, you know, one thing that we've learned from like studying evolution since Darwin is that when things evolve, they don't just always just evolve very nicely and cleanly into each other. There seems to be like sudden jumps, you know, things just kind of boil over when you have certain contradictions and such. So, you know, that whole view of things just slowly evolving into each other doesn't really play out in like, like nature as much either. Yeah, one thing I thought was a really interesting point that Stalin makes here is the talking about the uh, aristocracy sort of slowly transitioning power away from itself. Um, But Stalin rightly points out this wasn't just something that they did out of the kindness of their hearts. They did it because of immense pressure from below. This was to save themselves. But I think a lot of people kind of forget about this when they're talking about things like the Nordic countries. People say Nordic socialism. Oh, it's the ideal form. You know, the capitalists just out of the goodness of their hearts just decided to kind of uh, provide all of these wonderful benefits to all these people. But that's not looking at it from a class perspective. Uh, you have to realize that the, where are these Nordic countries geographically located? They're located right on the border of what was the Soviet Union. Uh, so these classes were probably the ones that were most concerned about an imminent uh, Bolshevik revolution or socialist revolution from their own working class. So they needed, they were forced, like the British monarchy was forced here to make these concessions to their people and give them these uh, basically socialist type uh, benefits um, in order to kind of placate them. Um, So I think a lot of people kind of forget about that when they're talking about these kind of things, like these sort of anomalies within the capitalist uh, system. But also, if you notice, after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, what has been happening in these Nordic countries? Are they keeping all of their wonderful benefits? Well, no, they're basically going and implementing austerity programs, despite nothing fundamentally changing about their economic system. You know, they're not going through any sort of crisis or anything, but the capitalist class that is ruling these countries, that has always been ruling these countries, is no longer really threatened. And it feels that it can kind of uh, allow itself greater freedom to restrict all of these concessions that it made because it never wanted to make those in the first place. I mean, hell, Sweden didn't even do any kind of quarantine for COVID. Like, they they explicitly don't care. This is the model. This is the socialist model, a country that doesn't even go into quarantine when the deadly virus just sweeps through it. It's ridiculous. The United States did more. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one other interesting thing I noticed in there was H.G. Wells, he seems really caught up on communist propaganda. He seems like it's just 
overly violent and it's just trying to stimulate like the wrong, I don't know, the wrong things. But um, I'm, I'm curious how, how you guys will respond to that. Cause this is something, you know, gets brought up a lot today too. People are like, Oh, well, isn't all that old revolution stuff just out of date. I think it's funny. They were mentioned that in like 1934 and it's like a, almost a hundred years later, but um, how do you guys respond to that claim? As I was reading that his like first, I am for order as I was reading through that, I, what immediately came to my mind was uh, social democracy is the moderate wing of fascism. Because uh, it's just like, I am for order, not any specific kind of order, just order and law. And in any fascistic right. movement, that's all you hear about is law and order, law and order, law and order. And it, I think that's relevant here. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. look at what happened after uh, World War One in Germany. You know, the social de democrats basically hired the Freikorps to put down Rosa Luxemburg and her revolutionaries uh, in favor of restoring order was exactly the terminology they used there. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, as far as like the whole communist propaganda thing goes, I think, I don't know, it seems to me as if H.U. Wells is probably just getting a little too caught up on that because, I don't know, whenever you read this stuff, you very, very rarely see violence get brought up. I mean, I don't know, even reading propaganda from back then. I mean, um, it's talked about a little bit in like state and revolution and such. But beyond that, it's not like something that we always point out. Or, and I assume they probably weren't pointing out a bunch back then. I don't think that communists ever saw that as the way to organize the working class by like saying, oh, we're, it's going to be like all guns blazing revolution. But, um, you know, social Democrats that's something that I guess they've never been able to get over is that that's not like how revolution is a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, pretty much any revolutionary move, like, you know, Americans will talk about all the great things that the American revolution did. That was an extremely violent event uh, that required a lot of uh, conflict, you know, uh, the civil war. A lot of people consider that to be a revolutionary sort of situation um, obviously required a lot of bloodshed in order to free the slaves, slave owners did not give up that voluntarily by any means. Exactly. Uh, you know, people people say that they're nonviolent, but like pretty much most of the progress in history that we have is due to at some point uh, violence from a mass uprising of people. Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of order to the Southern antebellum system. Uh, everybody had their place. And society functioned in accordance with a white supremacist model. This doesn't necessarily make it the ideal society. Just because you advocate for social order doesn't mean you advocate for the benefit of the working class. And for a lot of people, order just means stamping down on those. Uh, how dare those workers go on strike? We need order in the streets. Uh, how dare those trade unions try to organize? We need order. So that's really what it comes down to. Calls for order essentially devolve into calls for fascism. This and, actually, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say it, it. It was ironic that he brought up the organizing ability of Ford because Ford was a Nazi collaborator. Ford loved Hitler, and so it, it's just strange and kind of prophetic to see Wells using Ford is like, oh, well, he was a good organizer, though, wasn't he? You got to admit. And uh, sort of throwing him a bone there just to see, you know, Ford support fascism. 
Yeah, I mean, Ford handed out uh, anti-Semitic news newsletters and newspapers to all of his factory workers that were talking about like the uh, protocols of Zion or whatever. Like he would he would hand all of those things out to all of his workers, which is just you know pretty mask off. <laughs> but uh, what I was going like, to say is this actually reminds me a lot of something I was just reading um, about uh, the U.S.'s response to the Haitian Revolution, which was a big slave uprising on the plantation colony of haiti um so this happened in the early 1800s around 18 1800 1802 something like that um but after that revolution there's a really good quote on the wikipedia article about this um it says as the year after the revolution as the years progressed haiti only became a bigger target for scorn among the pro-slavery factions in the south it was taken as proof that quote Violence was an inherent part of the character of blacks due to the slaughtering of French whites and the authoritarian rule that followed the end of the revolution. While this logical fallacy required ignoring the violent and authoritarian rule of white people over enslaved Africans, as well as its psychological effects on those Africans. So people have been, even when talking about a literal slave uprising from one of the most brutal plantation colonies that has ever existed in human history, you still see kind of, uh, you know, the white privileged class kind of trying to portray these uprisings as just brutal acts of uncivilized barbarians slaughtering innocent white people with violence. They say that they're anti-violence, despite the fact that their entire system was maintained through coercion and violence in the first place of a much larger scale. But because it was the status quo, it didn't even register to them as violence. Yeah, it's always very subjective as in the sense that it depends who you're hearing, you know, a certain piece of history from, like who your source is. Because, I mean, yeah, if you were on the receiving end of a revolution, of course, you're going to say it was like the most authoritarian thing in the world. So it, it really goes back to that whole class perspective thing. And that's what Stalin kept trying to point out was if you're just viewing this from like one class perspective, of course, you're going to think of it that way. But um you know, uh, back to kind of the topic of like peaceful coexistence and peaceful competition, um, you know, an interesting point that you just made a little bit ago, an angry dumpster was um, you were saying that it's mostly a one way street as far as how that goes. Um, I I'm curious, um, um, what was it that Stalin like realized? Because I know, like, like I said, now we see China's doing something kind of like this. Um, there's a little bit of like pro and cons to being totally standoffish and, you know, totally open to Western countries. So what's that, what's that all about? Well, the, what springs to my mind always was uh, Stalin sent a letter. The, the Stalin notes got sent to NATO, I think specifically to the United States that proposed, um, you know, a united neutral Germany and a united neutral Austria, which uh, obviously the German proposal got rejected completely always. And I'm not quite sure how long, oops, the, um, the Austria, the Austrian proposal was rejected, but I know it was rejected too at first. Um, so just little things like that of trying to come up with peace deals, um, um, trying to ensure peaceful cooperation and the UN and all of that before finally giving up on it and declaring an iron curtain. Yeah. Is it safe to say whenever you maybe open up too much and collaborate with the West a lot, you kind of like sacrifice some of your international solidarity. Um, I don't know how, where everybody like stands on this position, but 
I mean, I'm very, I'm very much in support of China, but my one of my biggest points of critique would be it's unfortunate that they don't have something like a common turn or they don't have anything yeah. that's like commenting with other communist parties around the world. But of course, if they did that, that might kind of like ruin some of their business interests. So it seems like it is a little bit of a well, give and take. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, like China, I think, just does not want to be put into a position where they're directly antagonistic with the US because as, as far as China has advanced, I mean, it's advanced a great deal, but it's well, still, only in the past decade or so. It's only been in the past decade, but also they're still nowhere really close to being able to compete one-on-one with the United States. So I think they see it as if they can continue to advance themselves and get more industrialized and more developed without necessarily having the West constantly trying to undercut them, sabotage them, sanction them, which is probably what a lot of these measures would result in if they did Mm -hmm. try to kind of uh, stir up unrest and different things in different countries. um, Then, yeah, I mean, they're they're essentially trying to kind of walk a fine line, I guess, as as of right now, at least. Yeah, I'd agree with that summation. It's not in my analysis, so much them looking after their business interests. It's just they looked at what they were capable of on an international stage, and they looked at what the Soviet Union was capable of, and they saw what happened to the Soviet Union and said, no, we can't be doing that. (laughs) Um, And so they have, for for better or worse, done a non-interventionist policy because in that way you can fight imperialism without actually having to undercut the, the... the state apparatuses of many third world countries. Um, the Philippines is a great example of that where they catch a lot of flack, but it has moved the Philippines away from the influence of the United States. So, yeah, it's also a double edged sword because I mean, they don't interfere by exporting revolution into different countries, but they also don't force other countries to uh, accommodate with their demands and force other countries to adopt their type of system as well. Yeah. So, it it cuts both ways essentially. Yeah, one thing that I, I have I know Stalin talked about in the foundations of Leninism was he talks about how the the revolution ebbs and flows. That's the terminology that he uses, and meaning there will be like super revolutionary moments when everybody's like ready to go, and sometimes it will walk itself back. And it seems like when China was kind of um, you know taking when they were opening up their markets and such. You know, we also see like Cuba, they stopped supporting revolutions around the world or exporting revolutions, I should say. But, um, you know, they took the new approach with like sending doctors, which is cool. But, you know, we kind of saw on a worldwide scale how all these socialist countries were like, okay, maybe this isn't the moment to export revolutions right now. So there might be revolutionary moments when we see like a common turn or something like that. But Sometimes the material conditions may not be ripe for that. That's my opinion. I think right now, I mean, actually Stalin has another thing that he wrote that was him speculating on what would happen if the Soviet Union did collapse and uh, capitalism was restored. And he did talk, he talked about how if that were to happen, it would usher in a time period of the blackest reaction, I think is what he said. Just um, all of the left-wing progressive forces within Russia and within Eastern Europe would be, you know, basically brutally cracked down on and the world would essentially go through a, a, a period of uh, new colonialism 
and imperialism the strongest that it had ever been seen before. I think we're kind of coming out of the tail end. I mean, obviously that did actually happen. If you look at Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union, it's been you know, pretty much a disaster and left-wing people all across that area are essentially subject to constant persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I mean, obviously the U.S. has basically had a free hand to expand its imperialist interests all across the world. So, um, but I think we're kind of reaching the yeah. tail end of that. Like the revolution has been in its ebbing period, but now it's sort of beginning to come back. I think there's a lot more unrest and uh dislike of the united states on an international scale i think people are kind of seeing the phony uh aspects of neoliberalism like we're not at the end of history by any means and i think we're starting to build up momentum again from that hit that we took so um, i'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in the next few years i think it's going to be quite an interesting experience i i don't know if this will actually happen or not um but there's a document that that China that they've released and it's, it's called like the one or the 2035 project or something. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. I might want to look into this to double check, but basically it's saying that they're expecting, you know, America to not be the hegemonic, like ruler of the world by maybe like 2035. So, Hey, I I hope that's true. But um, I, I think we are at the very least, we're definitely in a moment where it's kind of a rising tide again. Maybe we're in the pre- preliminary stage, but it definitely seems like we're shifting back towards that kind of uh, moment again to me. I think the coronavirus as of right now has really accelerated that. I think the U.S. has lost a lot of its footing and its its pedestal yeah. that it's been on on the world stage for a while. It It's essentially become sort of the laughing stock of of the developed world at least um yeah. much of the rest of the world as well um, there was a there was a lot of movement towards china for relief for coronavirus response so we might they we might have hit that a few years early quite a few years early <laughs> it hmm. it almost might be a moment where i mean this is kind of hopeful thinking but the ideal situation would be if it was more practical for countries to do business with china which might be on the horizon but I feel like that would probably be a, a like a great moment because, you know, people will be like, well, why are we dealing with the United States? They just keep trying to get us into wars and all that. I'm tired of all that. So we're just going to like do some some business with China. But we'll, we'll see. I think we're seeing that for sure. Mm-hmm. African countries especially are moving much more towards uh, dealing with China for business because they have much more agreeable terms and they try to operate on a policy of essentially uh, mutual assistance rather than purely extractive exploitative industry yeah i think the problems faced in the bolshevik era was largely the imperialist powers were fighting amongst each other and so in that sort of atmosphere they were able to grow and export their revolution but in these days the uh, bourgeois power structure, the imperialist power structure is largely consolidated under U.S. hegemony. So I think the things that will sort of break that hegemony are the things like we discussed, like coronavirus, uh, climate change, this imminent economic collapse. And we are seeing governments come along like China 
who are able to adapt to these changing circumstances and they are growing more dominant while the US is scrambling and struggling and losing their standing on the world stage. I think this might result in uh, fascism because fascism, like Stalin said, is an attempt to rescue the existing bourgeois power structure. But I wanted to know just in the in the closing statements what we thought of that. If we if we could look to the future in our crystal balls, what we think might happen. The the next Republican to come after Trump will verify if that statement is true or not. End of story. That's my prediction. Yeah, it seems like whenever there's a revolutionary moment, this is one thing that, you know, I would comfortably say Marx couldn't have predicted is he saw the potential for workers to, you know, want to fight for a new or a new system, essentially. And he couldn't have recognized that stuff like nationalism and racism and stuff could also easily, you know, sometimes more easily take in the workers. So whenever you see a moment where it could be a socialist revolution, it it seems like, um, I don't know, maybe just here in the West or in, in certain places, but it's equally as likely that a fascist movement is rising at the same moment. But yeah, it's a little early to tell. Yeah, uh, I agree with um, the general secretary of the PCUSA summation is that uh, Trump is leading the way for that fascist movement right now. Not so much being a fascist himself, because I'll be honest, I don't think he has an ideology to really speak of beyond get money. <laughs> um, but yeah, the 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 path is being paved for the fascists um this is we might be seeing seeing that movement really take power here in the next few years yeah i mean we've talked about this before but my money is essentially on um what i think danky has predicted where we're going to see a right-wing probably populist uh leaders sprout up along ar around the world but probably uh sweetening up their stances by um offering social programs social democratic type programs as well to kind of ease a lot of this class interest uh class tension that's being uh provided but mixing that with like a xenophobic uh nationalist hyper patriotic sort of uh sort of ethos and i think that's sort of what we really need to be vigilant for because the democratic party <laughs> for example has essentially not allowed itself to move along with what the masses of people actually want. Um, and so it's going to be very easy for reactionaries to co-opt all of this frustration for themselves and channel it in a more uh, xenophobic and reactionary sort of direction. So we need to be constantly vigilant of that and willing to criticize that if it does pop up. Yeah, absolutely. Was there any last closing comments or anything that anybody wanted to make on the interview between Stalin and H.G. Wells before we get out of here? Um, nothing about the interview, but I just wanted to take a moment to tell everyone if you live in the United States and you want to get organized, you want to find a party to join, I highly recommend, I think all of us here highly recommend the Party of Communist USA. Absolutely. And we're, we are all members of the, um, we're all in the party of communist USA. We don't totally represent all their views or anything like that. We are simply just members, but, um, yeah, absolutely. If you're interested, please search us. Um, and yeah, hit us up. We'll, we'll get you in contact with who you need to.
Yes, go on partyofcommunistusa.org and you'll find all the information that you need uh, to learn about us and get in contact. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I appreciate everybody for listening. I thought this was a great um, interview. Um, On that note, I'll talk to you all later. Peace. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. All right. See you later, guys. Bye.